This morning, we're going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 4 together. We're going to look at the first uh, 22 verses, I think, um, if, we, if we can finish it. But before we do that, I would uh, like to ask you a favor. Um, as, as is typical, I'd like to invite you to join with me in prayer to ask that God might speak to us, that God might work among us and teach us from his word. So pray with me, if you would, please. God of heaven, we need you. We need your mercy, we need your forgiveness, we need your Holy Spirit. Lord God, we, uh, we are blind to who you are, to your glory and your greatness, and we have wandered away. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, you might give us a fresh vision of the greatness of our God and King, that our hearts may might be once more by the power of your spirit held captive by your love, by your greatness, by the power of who you are. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that your spirit might be on us, teaching us, instructing us, leading us into repentance and faith and obedience. But we ask that this might not be a momentary thing, but that you might as the song says, wrestle us and win, that we might be wholly yours and live for your holy name. Amen. Well, you know, as I thought about the last 10 or 15 years of my life, there's, I, I noticed that there has been this malingering kind of frustration with God. I've been frustrated at how hidden God seems to be. I mean, just, just think of what your life would be like if you caught a real vision of who God was. I mean, think about it. I mean, if you saw a vision of God's immense love for you, and you were just bathed in the immensity of God's love for you in Jesus, and you were set free from this insecure love that we come to all our relationships with, you were set free to lavish on other people the generous love of Jesus, how radically different would your life be? Or if you caught a vision of the goodness of God and you saw that his every command in your life was for your own good, that God was for you, how that would decimate the lie of the serpent that says God's commands are holding you back from what is really pleasurable. I mean, if we saw but the goodness of God, our, 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 our heart for obedience would explode and we would say with the psalmist, how I love to run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. And what about the holiness of God? I mean, what would happen to us if we caught just a ever so slight vision of the burning holiness of God? Every shred of self-righteousness in our hearts would melt in his white-hot holiness, and we would flee and cling with all our strength to Jesus as our only hope of righteousness, and all our vanity would vaporize, and we would live as humble people before God. I am convinced that as believers, one of our greatest needs, if not our greatest need, is to see God for who he is. But if that is our greatest need, or at least one of our greatest needs, then why is it that God so often seems hidden? 
Why does it seem that God oftentimes is so hard to see? Well, with that question in the front of our minds, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 4 and take a look at what the passage says there. Now, if you don't have a scripture with you, there's some Bibles in the back. Feel free to hop up and get one of those. And before we read from Acts chapter 4, let me just take a second and set the context. Do you remember from last week, Peter and John are on their way to the temple. And at the temple gate, they see this man who is begging there. This man was in his 40s, and he had been crippled from birth. And when Peter sees him, he heals this man in the name and the power of Jesus. And this man with these withered legs not only stands up, not only is our muscles restored to his legs, but the ability to walk is, is given to him. Miraculously, this man stands up and starts walking, and not only does he walk, but he follows them into the temple, leaping and dancing. He's like, whoa, you look at this. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's so excited. He's praising God. And it says he's hanging on Peter and John. I mean, this is a spectacle. And when the people see it, they all gather around. They knew this guy who was dancing. He was a fixture at the temple. Every time they went through the beautiful gate, there he was. And now they see this man leaping and dancing and praising God. And so they gather around Peter and John. And Peter just... Pulls out, pulls out the guns and blasts them. He, said, they, he says, you want to know how this man was healed? I'll tell you. This man was healed in the power and the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Now, if you're a Jew and someone has just told you that you have crucified God's anointed king, and God has just raised his anointed king, whom you crucified from the dead, what are you thinking? I'm in pretty serious trouble here. But then Peter goes on and he says this. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Peter delivers to them terrible news. They have killed God's anointed king and God has raised him from the dead. And, but now he says, but if you turn to God, if you turn from your self-seeking ways and seek God, not only will your sins be forgiven, but God will draw near in his mercy and refresh your soul. They go from being worried about God crushing their soul to the promise of God refreshing their soul. And the pivot is if they are willing to repent and turn from themselves and turn to God. Let's pick up the story then in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, if we could. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now there is this irrefutable demonstration of the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the risen Christ, raising this man from being a cripple to dancing and leaping and praising God. And the evidence is so compelling, and the work of the Holy Spirit is so powerful among these people that 5,000 men, the number of believers grows to 5,000 men. Now add in women and children to that, and perhaps you're at 20, you know, 10 to 20,000 maybe. The estimated population of Jerusalem in the first century was 80 to 100,000. 
and you've got maybe upwards of 20,000 new converts. This is massive. This is, this is just an explosive work of the Holy Spirit. Nearly everyone who hears the good news of Jesus Christ and sees the power of Christ demonstrated, almost everyone is repenting and coming to faith, almost everyone, except for a notable group of fellows named the Sadducees. They're not repenting and finding joy in Christ. They're majorly ticked off. And the reason they're ticked is because they're preaching in Jesus the resurrection and they're accusing the Sadducees of killing Jesus. You know, you look at the Sadducees and, and, and when, we, when we look at them from a distance, we're, I mean, for me, I'm just staggered by their blindness. I mean, these Sadducees have this rich tradition of being completely blind to the work of God. These are the same men who put Jesus on trial. God himself is literally standing in front of the Sadducees as they try him. And they, looking at God, conclude that this is an evil man who, who deserves to be put to death. They, these Sadducees are literally so blind that they cannot see God when he is standing right in front of them. And now there's this patently obvious work of God that is right in front of him. This guy is dancing and leaping and praising God, and still they cannot see God. How could they be so blind? What is it that led them to such unfathomable blindness? Well, in order to answer that question, it might be good to, for us to just kind of review who these fellows were. The Sadducees were the priests they were responsible for the temple. They were a political group and they had great power. They had great political power. They even had a militia. They had the temple guard. They were in control of that. And so these were, these were the religious leaders. They were the, the, the priests responsible for the temple. They were politically powerful. They were militarily powerful. They were really well-educated and they were very wealthy. The, the temple was the number one tourist attraction in Israel. And they ruled the temple, and they made a boatload of money off it. These guys were wealthy. They were powerful. But what's interesting about the Sadducees is they had this weird theology stuff going on. You see, the first century Jews, their Old Testament, or their, their Bible was our Old Testament. Exact same books in their Bible as in our Old Testament, as you know. The difference is, is they arranged them a little differently. They arranged them as the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses, the law, the same first five books in our Bible. Then the second category they had that they arranged the books of the Bible in was the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. So it's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, which means the writings. And the writings were the books of poetry and the books of wisdom and the books of history. Now, the normal Jew embraced all of that, but the Sadducees said the only books that were valid the only books that were really authoritative from God was the Torah. Now, it's understandable why they picked the Torah, because the priesthood is established in the Torah, and the priests are given power in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses. But why would these men reject the prophets? The prophets were universally accepted as inspired by God. And yet the Sadducees said no. Now, if you were to ask the Sadducees why they rejected the prophets, they probably would have given you some erudite, scholarly answer that left you fully convinced that they were way smarter than you, and that if you were half as smart as them, you'd agree with them. But if you look, if you read the prophets, 
you can see why the, why the Sadducees rejected the prophets. When the prophets of Israel came to Israel, they proclaimed, they called Israel to, to repent from three major sins. The sins that the Old Testament prophets called Israel to repent of was the sin of idolatry, the sin of social injustice, and the sin of religious formalism. Guess who we just described? The Sadducees. The Sadducees were in charge of worship at the altar of God in the temple, but the Sadducees worshiped at a very different altar. They worshiped at the altar of wealth. They worshiped at the altar of power. They worshiped at the altar of reputation. And what about social injustice? These men made their money by oppressing the poor pilgrim who was coming to the temple to worship God, by overcharging them for all sorts of stuff. You remember when Jesus cleanses the temple? What does he say? My father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it what? A den of robbers. Those robbers were working for the Sadducees. A den of thieves, a den of robbers. They were working for the Sadducees. These men were the epitome of social injustice. And what about religious formalism? If in the first century you were to go to Wikipedia and look up religious formalism or look up poser, there would be a picture of a Sadducee there. Okay? These guys were the epitome of religious posers. I mean, they looked really good on the outside. They kept all these rules, fastidious rules, to show people how holy they were, and inside they were corrupt. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look really sparkly clean on the outside, but inside you're full of putrid filth and death. What I want you to see is the reason the Sadducees rejected the prophets was not because the prophets were wrong, but because the prophets were saying that the, the Sadducees were wrong. Their the because the Sadducees harbored sin in their hearts, their theology was formed to accommodate their sin. Because the Pharisees, the Sadducees rather, refused to repent of their sin, their theology was, was, was pressed by their sin to conform to that sin, to make room for that sin. You see, faith and sin cannot coexist. Faith erodes sin and sin erodes faith. But what about the resurrection? Why would the, why would the Sadducees reject the resurrection? Well, for the first century Jew, the resurrection necessarily brought with it the purpose of the resurrection. One of the primary purposes was you would be raised to judgment, where you would give accounting for what you have done before the throne of God. Part and parcel of the resurrection was judgment. We read about this in Revelation 20, you know, the great judgment throne where people stand before and must give an accounting for what they have done. There's two ways for you to avoid impending judgment. One is to repent and flee to Christ and have him take your judgment for you. The other way to flee impending judgment is to deny that it's coming. And that's what the Sadducees did. They wanted to get out from judgment, they were unwilling to repent, so they just said, there's no judgment coming. There's no such thing as a resurrection. Their theology was shaped around their sin. But 
Their belief was shaped by their sin, and their, their faith was eroded by their sin, and without faith, it is impossible to see God. What I want you to see is that what we do matters. If we harbor sin in our heart, that sin will erode our faith. And when our faith is eroded, we will not be able to see God. You see, faith and sin are polar opposites. The essence of faith is, uh, the essence of sin is this. The essence of sin is the flesh driving us to seek the immediate glory of self. The essence of sin is the flesh controlling us, holding us in bondage that we might seek the immediate glory of self. Faith is the spirit of God in us, moving us to seek the eternal glory of God. And if you are seeking the glory of self, you are by definition not seeking the glory of God. And if you are seeking the glory of God, then you are by definition not seeking the glory of self. Faith and sin are not compatible. One will press out the other. What we do matters. If, if we harbor sin in our hearts, it will press out our faith. It will erode our faith. Tim Keller tells a story about a pastor friend of his. And this pastor, pastored a church where there was a number of college students attending. And these students would, during the school season, they would go off to college. And then in the summers, they would come back. And this pastor, being a good pastor, concerned for the souls of these young people, would seek to get together with these folks one-on-one. -on -one. And he'd go out to breakfast with them or he'd have coffee with them. And they'd start off just chit-chatting, you know, how about how the school year went. And then he'd begin to ask them, you know, how are you doing in your faith? How's your walk with the Lord? How goes it with your soul? And some of them would bring back great reports about, you know, their, their, their joys of living for Jesus. And others would say, you know, I got this science class I'm taking, and you know, it's really raising doubts in my heart. I had doubts in my mind as to whether God really is. Or I've got this philosophy class I'm taking, and you know, I'm wondering whether any of this is true. And this pastor would look these people in the eye, he'd look them square in the eye, and he would ask them this question. Who have you been sleeping with? say, what? I'm struggling with these intellectual arguments. I'm struggling with these philosophical thoughts. Listen, the deadliest assault on our faith is not intellectual arguments. It is harboring sin in our hearts. And when that happens, it will press out faith to make room for the sin. This man knew that. And when he faced their doubts, he asked them this question, who have you been sleeping with? So I come back around to myself. And maybe my prayer to God should not be, God, why are you so hard to see? But God, show me who I've been sleeping with. Show me what idols I'm harboring in my heart. Show me the ways I am seeking my own vain glory and not your glory, that I might repent and see you. Sin shapes our faith, erodes our faith, and without faith, we cannot see God.
You know, what we believe really genuinely shapes a lot of what we can and can't see. You know, when a, when a drug company wants to run a trial on some pharma, new pharmaceutical they've come up with, they, they run what's called a double-blind test, a double-blind trial. And what that means is that the patient who is receiving the drug is blind to whether they're receiving the real drug or a fake drug, just a placebo. But, not o- but it's a double-blind. Not only is the patient blind to whether he's receiving the real drug or not, but the doctor administering the drug is blind to whether that patient is getting the real drug or not. He doesn't know. They have to do this. It doesn't matter how honest the patients are. It doesn't matter how honest the doctors are. If they know what's happening and they believe the drug is effective, they're going to interpret the the results differently. If they believe the drug's not effective, they're going to see what they believe. Our belief affects what we see. And when our sin grows, when we harbor sin and it presses faith out of our hearts, we can no longer see God because we don't believe. Sin affects what we believe. What we believe affects what we can see. Well, the Sadducees have an opportunity to confess their sin, to turn to God. They are confronted by Peter and John with their sin. They have this opportunity to repent, to turn from that sin that is blinding them, to be set free that they might see the glory of God in Christ Jesus. To be set free from being a poser, but they decide, no, we kind of like this. We, we are unwilling to humble ourselves. We want to seek our own glory rather than the glory of God. And they continue on in being posers. They, they are fully committed to being a poser. Now, let me tell you from, from, a, a long, from a lot of life experience, okay? Being a poser is exhausting. It's a lot of work to be a poser. I mean, you've got to put up this front that you're perfect when you're not. That can be exhausting. I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if your glory is in how, how good you look, all it takes to put you in a tizzy is a nice big red zit on your nose. You know, and you're scrambling for some way to cover it up. I mean, if you find your glory in being smart and intelligent and always right, it's a lot of work to always be right. And if you're not right, it's a lot of work to scramble to find some way to spin it, to excuse yourself, to make an excuse, or at least find someone to blame. It's hard work being a poser. But the Sadducees decide, no, we're going to stick with where we're going to seek our own glory. The freedom that can be ours in Christ, no thank you, we're into our own glory. And so these guys start scrambling to protect their own glory. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Sadducees have put Peter and John in jail to silence them, and then they bring them out and place them on trial. And Peter and John stand before this tribunal of the Sadducees. Now, because we know how the story ends, sometimes we can fail to see the intensity of what's going on here. A month and a half earlier, Peter himself had watched Jesus stand before these very same men. The exact same men that he is standing before, a month and a half earlier, Jesus had stood before. And when Jesus did not give these men the answer they wanted, they had him killed. And now Peter is standing before these men, and the answer they want Peter to give is to deny Jesus. And if he does not give that answer, he may well be put to death. Now remember Peter. Peter's the guy who, when questioned about Jesus by a servant girl who had absolutely no power, he denies Jesus three times. Now this Peter is standing before the Sadducees. They want him to deny Jesus. And if he does not, they have the power to at least make his life miserable, if not kill him. And how does he answer? He says, you want to know how this man was healed? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. It's in his name that this man was healed. You builders who rejected this stone have rejected the cornerstone of God's temple. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Wow. In front of a servant girl, he's calling down curses on himself, saying, I never knew the man. And in front of the most powerful men in that area, he is saying, you killed the Son of God, whom God raised from the dead, our only Savior. What a remarkable difference. This is a radically different man. How do you explain that? Verse 8, but Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. The work of the flesh is to drive us to bring glory to our own flesh, immediate glory to our own flesh. The work of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to bring eternal glory to our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is set free from the self-protection that ruled him, set free to now live for the glory of Christ in a powerful way by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter says Jesus is the only way for us to be saved. But what, is, what does he mean? Saved from what? Remember when Mary is pregnant and the angel comes to Joseph and says to Joseph, you are to give this baby the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus in the Hebrew is Yahshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. God is our Savior. Jesus is God come to earth to save us from God. 
Jesus is God come to earth to save us from God. We have sinned against a holy and just God, and we are deserving of his wrath. And so Jesus is God himself come to earth to live a perfect life, to take the wrath that is rightly ours on himself, to save us from the judgment of God. Now, when we say that Jesus is our only Savior, the only way to be saved from the judgment of God, it sounds, to our, to our culture, that sounds harsh. But listen to the words of Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There's only two places the wrath of God can go either on us or on Christ. Mohammed can't take the wrath of God. Confucius can't take the wrath of God. Buddha can't take the wrath of God. There's only two places the wrath of God can go. Either it rests on us or it rests on God himself who bears wrath on our behalf and satisfies the justice of God while at the same time being gracious and merciful. Now, We live in a culture where if you say that Jesus is the only way, that's like wicked offensive, you know? And it's partly because our culture's theology, if you will, has been shaped by our culture's sin. It's conformed to our And our culture's understanding of, of, of tolerance has been shaped by our cultural sin. Used to be that tolerance meant that I, if I were to say to you, listen, Tom, what you're doing is wrong, and here's why. That tolerance meant when I confronted Tom, poor Tom, when I, <laughs> when I confronted Tom, that I was respectful and I honored him as a man who has created the image of God, as a co-equal before a sovereign God. And while I debated truth with him and as we argued to seek truth together, we treated each other with respect. That was tolerance. Now, our society has redefined this tolerance to say that if I ever say to anyone, no, I believe what you are doing is wrong and here's why, that is intolerance. Let me tell you, that is not, and, and, and this, this tolerance has become the singular virtue of our culture. And it is a virtuous veil behind which we hide a lazy intellect, a selfish heart, and a cowardly soul. Suppose you, you've grown up in, the, up in the North Georgia, Tennessee, Blue Ridge area. It's, you know, up in the beautiful country up there where there's actually hills and cool air. Um, and those things we long for at times. Uh, but but you, you, you live up there, you've grown up there, and it's, it's summer, and you've taken your family to your favorite spot next to this river. Where you, and so you're having this picnic. And there's been a lot of rain there, which is true. And, and the river is swollen. It's really ripping fast. And you know, because you grew up around there, that around the bend is this waterfall, this serious waterfalls, where every year three or four people lose their lives on it because they don't respect its power. So you're camping out, you're having your picnic there, and you hear this rowdiness up, upstream, and around the bend come these three college guys, you know, they're, on, they're in their inner tubes, and, and it looks like they're dragging something behind each of the tubes, you know, and so they come around the corner, and you realize that what's dragging behind each of the tubes is the remnants of a six-pack that they're keeping cool in the water behind them. Well, they're hooting and hollering, they're having a great time while they're tubing. 
And they start coming past you, and you know that there's a waterfalls around the edge. And so you say, hey, guys, how are you doing? They're like, yeah, dude, great. How are you, man? You're like, hey, guys, listen, there's a waterfalls around the bend, so you guys need to start paddling over here. In fact, you know, we got plenty of food. We'd love to share it with you. No, dude, man, we're okay. We're all right. See ya. Right there, you're faced with a question. What do you do? Is the loving thing to say, well, okay, all right, man, if that's what you believe, okay. Or is the loving thing to take it up a notch and say, guys, listen, man, seriously, you are going to die if you go around that bend. If you don't start paddling out now, this river is going to kill you. And perhaps even swim out there to them. Put yourself at risk. Endure their anger because you know that unless you do that, they're headed for certain destruction. When we fail to proclaim that Jesus Christ alone is the only way to be spared from God's wrath, it is not an act of tolerance and love. It is an act of cowardice and selfishness. But more than that, if we fail to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way to be spared from the wrath of God, we declare by default that Jesus Christ is an idiot. I mean, think about it. Jesus is in the garden, and he's in such anguish of soul because he knows what awaits him. And he's pleading with the Father, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. The cup he's talking about is the Old Testament cup of God's wrath that he is going to drink to its dregs for us so that it will not be poured out on us. And he says, Father, if there's any way else for these people here to be spared from your wrath than me drinking the cup of your wrath, then please do it. Please find some other way. But there is no other way. And so Jesus goes to the cross and he endures unspeakable physical agony an infinite spiritual agony as he takes the wrath of God on our behalf. But if we fail to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation, we are saying, oops, Jesus, you made a mistake. You know all that suffering? You know all that anguish? You know all that crying out and that kind of stuff? You really didn't have to do that. If we love people, we will tell them that Jesus is the only way if we seek the glory of Jesus Christ, we will tell them for the sake of God's glory that Jesus is the only way. Love for others, love for God compels us in the face even of anger to tell people the only way to be spared from God's wrath is for Jesus to be your wrath eater, your wrath drinker. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak at all and teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. We'll trust you with that decision, guys. 
for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. These Sadducees desperately, with every fiber of their being, want to find some way to discredit Peter and John. But they can't do it because of the dancing cripple. I mean, this guy is standing right next to them, and you can just, I, I, I'm sure his dancing didn't stop in chapter three, <laughs> you know? He's standing there and all of a sudden, oh, I can, I can. he's just excited about the fact that he can, st- 40 years he's lived without ever being able to stand, and now he can dance. You know, he's busting out some moonwalking, which I won't even try. But, you know, it, there's this undeniable evidence. They, they cannot refute that the power of Jesus has healed this man. And so they reach for the last tool in their toolbox. When you're not right, at least you can be stronger. And they threaten them with violence. And they say, you must not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter says, guys, let me ask you a question. Who do you think I should obey, God or you? I mean, are you guys this narcissistic that you're going to tell me to obey you rather than God? I mean, come on. And then he says this, and this is what I want you to leave with. He says, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The NIV says this, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. I mean, it's not like we're trying. We just just can't help but speak of Jesus. So Karen and I have, have... tried to set our vacation plans to, and, and travel plans to try and visit some of the national parks. You know, and it's, it's, it's amazing kind of to, to just step back and watch people at the national parks. I mean, they will stand before this, this object of just majesty and beauty. And the first thing that will happen is absolutely nothing. They will just, I mean, they'll be, they'll be awestruck by its beauty. And then invariably, invariably to the person, they will turn to, who, to the person next to them, the person they're with, and if they're not with anybody, they'll turn to a stranger, and they'll say, isn't it spectacular? I mean, look at, look at the rainbow and the spray of those falls. Look at the volume. Isn't, I mean, this person sees what they see. Why are they compelled to tell somebody? It is because the delight is exploding from within them, and they cannot fully enjoy the beauty of that majesty without speaking it. Peter says, listen, our preaching of the gospel is not because of some compulsory duty. It is a result of compulsive delight in the greatness of a God who we cannot help but praise and worship and declare the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This series is called Witnesses. This is the core of being a witness, of seeing the glory and the beauty of God in such a way that compulsive delight propels us to declare the beauty and the greatness of our Savior. But that brings us right back to square one. How then are we to catch this vision of a glorious God? You know, we can, I can, stand aloof to the Sadducees and those foolish, selfish men seeking their own glory, harboring sin in their hearts. And yet, we have to admit that we have harbored sin in our hearts 
and it is not without effect. It is not without effect. When, when, when the, the children of Israel come into the promised land, God tells them, listen, then this sounds harsh, and it is. And, and we can't go there into it right now, but he tells them, listen, you are to kill every man, woman, and child. Spare no one. Take no prisoners. Because if you let them live, they will lead you into idolatry. And so what do they do? They come into the promised land and they kill off a whole bunch of them and then they think, you know, we've killed enough of them to subdue them. You know, it'd be really cool to have these people as our slaves. They could really serve us. So thank you very much, God. I think what we'll do is we'll just keep these folks at a manageable level where they can serve us and we won't kill everyone. That's a little over the top, God. And what happens? You read the book of Judges and you find out that those people led, those people that remained in the land, that they let remain in the land, led the Israelites into the grossest idolatry and immorality so that those, they were worse, read Judges 19 sometime, they were worse than the nations they, dep- they dispossessed. This is what we do with our sins sometimes. God, I know you say mortify it, but I think I, I can just manage it. I can make this, I can keep this sin to a level where it doesn't destroy me. I'll just, you know, I'll re- if it gets out of hand, I'll repent, and then I'll put it back in its cage, you know? Because I, I, I kind of I, I like what this sin does for me sometimes, you know? I mean, it, I, I, I can make the sin serve me. And what happens? We convince ourselves that we got this sin under control, and all the while that sin is eroding our faith and pressing God out. A holy God cannot coexist with harbored sin. And I think it has warped in some ways our theology. I want to be really careful here. And I want to try and be really humble here. But I want to try and speak the truth too. I think it has warped our gospel theology so that at some level we have been left with the gifts of the gospel and not the God of the gospel. We can reduce preaching the gospel to our own soul as saying, I am loved, I am forgiven, I am treasured. I am loved, I am forgiven, I am treasured, I am precious. I am, that's straight out of a self-help book on how to have a great self-image. Here is what preaching the gospel to our souls might look like. Holy God of heaven, you are pure and you are holy above all else. And I have sinned against you and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right when you judge and when you pronounce your judgment against me. But God, glorious holy God of heaven, I praise you that you have sent your son to take my penalty. That God, in your mercy and your grace, you have rescued me. God, you are glorious. And you and your favor and your blessing have adopted me as your son and promised me an eternal inheritance that one day I will see my blessed Savior face to face and be set free from all that holds me back. God, you are glorious. You are my Savior. You are my stronghold. You are my salvation. Sin is the self seeking the immediate, is the flesh seeking the immediate glory of self. 
Faith is the Spirit of God seeking the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. There's a difference. And so I invite you with me. If you want to taste, see afresh the glory of God, I invite you to hear the call of Peter to repent, to turn to God, to turn away from seeking self, to seek the glory of God, that, we might be, that our sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing might come. There is a vision of God that comes to us as we exalt God, as we worship him, as we praise him, as we exalt him as our savior and as our king. It is in those praises, it is in that exaltation that our eyes are open to the greatness of our king and our hearts are set free from sin. And so I invite you now to repent, to confess the ways, the idolatry of lust in our hearts, the idolatry of greed and anger and materialism and vanity that has pressed out the presence of God. To repent that times of refreshing might come. And as we worship God, in that worship and exaltation of God, to pray that your eyes might be opened to see the beauty and the greatness of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.